You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Mara Vistendahl, who's a writer, speaker, and commentator. Her first book, Unnatural Selection, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Her writing has been published in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Popular Science, Scientific American, Wired, and other publications. For eight years, she was based in Shanghai, and while there, she worked as China Bureau Chief for Science and wrote the long-form true crime story, And the City Swallowed Them. She is now the author of the new book, The Scientist and the Spy, a true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage, which just came out a week ago. So welcome, Mara, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I often ask what made an author decide to write about a particular story, particular, you know, especially historic ones or even current events. You're you're the least, you're the person I need to ask that about the least, because you kind of have like really major things that kind of almost destined you <laughs> to write this. Not only did you live in China, as I mentioned yeah. in the bio, but you're from the Midwest, you're writing for science, you're looking at technological change in China. Right. Kind of all those things seem to perfectly come together to make you the the author that just had to write this book. Right. Um, right. So I was living in China and writing about science, uh, which meant, you know, I spent most of my days talking to researchers, following them into the field, um, also covering scandals, uh, of which there were a lot um, at the time in China. And, and one day I read this article about a um, Chinese born engineer named Robert Mo, who had been found in a cornfield in Iowa. And uh, it was a Monsanto cornfield. The company protected it as trade secrets. And his appearance there set off this two-year FBI investigation um, that just escalated, uh, involved all kinds of dramatic elements. And so after I read that, it was hooked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a wonderful story. I mean, we, we, we tell a little bit of it in this museum. We call it the Chinese corn caper. And it's it's wonderful in the fact that it kind of puts companies that most people would look at as being kind of villainous, you know, Monsanto, right? Kind of the center mm-hmm. of the anti-GMO movement right. and all that as the victim mm-hmm. of this, you know, industrial espionage, this economic, uh, you know, economic cold war between the United States and China. And so it has so many wonderful moving parts to it 
that's right. it's a story that just has to be told. I think you do yeah. have to do a very yeah. good job of doing so. I mean, the, the narrative um, has been told in bits and pieces until now, and mm-hmm. kind of this is the first time it's all been put together. You no, know, one of the things I liked about the story was that the various characters and companies involved were not um, black and white. You know, they were so complex. Um, Monsanto, obviously, being ca- cast in the ro- role of victim, as you mentioned, but also Robert Moe himself was this um, family man from you know, living in Florida, wife and two kids, loves to garden, goes to church. You know, by all accounts. Uh, we had talked with a number of people in his community. He's a very upstanding man, uh, but then he got involved uh, in this espion- in this industrial espionage caper, and that's when things started to go south. Well, one of the benefits of having a story that just happened is you do still have people that are still alive to kind of tell mm-hmm. this story. Can you talk a little bit about how you sourced this? Because it wasn't just like journalists going around and talking to people, you did some actual, you know, research when it came to court reports and things to that effect. Right. So when I, as I mentioned, when I first read about this case, I was living in China. Um, Then I moved back to the U.S. um, to Minnesota, where I'm from, and that put me very close to the action in the case. And once I was there, I thought, well, I really need to chase this story. And so I... You know, started with the court documents, showing up in court um, when possible, and then literally retracing Robert Moe's steps um, across the Midwest. And because this ca- case spanned two years, there were a lot of various twists and turns. Uh, a lot of, you know, it's was played out in Iowa, but also in Illinois and Vermont and Florida. And I tried to recreate as much of that as I could uh, by showing up, talking to the people he met, um, you know, visiting all the places he visited. At some point, he and his colleagues, um, so he worked for a uh, Beijing agricultural company that was trying to reverse engineer this corn from Monsanto. And at one point, they actually bought a farm in Illinois uh, in this effort to pose as farmers. And so I went to that farm. Uh, you know, talk to the neighbors and the neighbors were all like, well, we kind of wondered when when these guys purchased this farm. You know, it's really, really poor farmland and we've been sitting there for a long time. Nobody wanted to buy it. Um, um, so that was how I was able to recreate. And then I did also, um, in addition to that, it talked to everyone who was involved. So the FBI, I spent a long time talking right. to them. Um, also to Robert Moe himself and then to some other characters who come up later. I'm sure the neighbors yeah. wondered even more when the black Suburbans pulled up with the FBI yeah. agents <laughs> inside of them like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Um, all of this is, is kind of predicated on the idea of China's technological rise, which mm-hmm. most people now know has happened. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they don't really know the history of how it happened. Uh, China in many ways was similar to the Soviet Union in the 1980s that it was very behind on um, consumer electronic Mm -hmm. products. Um, But unlike the Soviets, mid-1980s, they actually kind of kick it in gear when it comes to national-based technology. And you you talk about the 863 project. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and how dramatically did this change China? Um, Because, uh, you know, you give a statistic, between 1991 and 2016, you have a 30-times increase in the size of their technological sector. That's extraordinary. That's Mm -hmm. massive. Mm Yeah, there has there has been this just uh, very impressive 
a rise in investment in science and technology. Uh, I lived in China for a total of eight years. And so even over the period that I was there from the early 2000s to 2014, uh, there was just a you know incredible improvement in the quality of research, you know, the sorts of people who were doing the research. Uh, you had researchers coming back in many cases from the, from the West to the um, Chinese who lived overseas and moving back. Um, at the same time, the government placed this priority and places this priority on development at all costs and on achieving breakthroughs in certain industries. Um, agriculture is one of them. And that encourages companies to get the latest technology. Uh, and there is an awareness that the government will look the other way. Right. Um, you know, if they manage to to steal it, and so it's not so much that the Chinese government's sending like sending spies out to the West in most cases with technologies like corn. Uh, it is instead that there are these incentives there, and the company has a lot of pressures on it to kind of produce uh, breakthroughs quickly. Right. And I mean, the Chinese economy is extraordinarily interesting in the fact that it's it's not. You can't call it communist anymore. I mean, the people still call it Chicoms. It is centrally planned. I mean, the, the Communist Party is kind of guiding the pressure, if not the resources, behind what industries go where. But there are these private companies that are making mm -hmm. billions and billions of dollars that aren't tied directly to the Chinese government. That's obviously not a communist state. Mm -hmm. But as you point out in the book, that even during this time of the 80s and 90s when space flight and internet technology and, and other industries were going crazy, a lot of rural areas in China were lucky to have a refrigerator. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of this dichotomy between the average everyday Chinese person and the government pushing these high-tech industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, there has been major progress. And it's also important to note that industrial espionage has been part of nations' rise throughout time. So. You know, going back centuries, um, the UK stole the technique for processing tea leaves from China, and that you know that sounds like a fairly simple thing, but it led to the rise of the East India Company, and which is an, an enormously wealthy company. Uh, the young, a young United States of America stole quite a, a lot of secrets from from the UK and from Europe, and now it's China's turn. Uh, you know, many people say. China's doing it on a scale that has never been seen before, and maybe in part because of the size of the of the country, but also the time at which it's emerging. You know, it's right. much easier than ever before right. to steal secrets. Like the internet has uh, has made it infinitely. You don't have to, you don't have to leave your country's borders, and um, at the same time, in this case that I looked at in my book. It, you know, they chose they chose this incredibly time-consuming way of stealing through cornfields, collecting ears of corn off the ground, uh, and even at one point trying to smuggle them back to China in microwave popcorn bags. Right, which I mean, extraordinarily old-fashioned if you think about it, compared to jump drives or right. or cyber attacks or things to that effect that have become so right. normal right. nowadays. Uh, let me let me. You talked about the idea that a lot of this technology transfer is stolen not all not all of it but a lot of it is and you, you directly attack a pretty conventional wisdom on kind of how the chinese intelligence service works um the thousand grains of sand theory which has been first front i mean front and center and the kind of the american understanding of, of how to deal with china 
intelligence, and you can certainly you can let us know what that is. Um, and, and you kind of lay that down and say, this is a nonsense way of looking at this. And it's actually not only nonsense, but actually is problematic mm -hmm. for American counterintelligence. Right, so that theory uh, was one that took hold in the 1990s, and it was this idea that if intelligence collection were aimed at determining the composition of sand on a beach, that the United States and Russia would rely on these kind of James Bond-like techniques, you know, sending professional spies in at night, um, maybe using technology and you know, using infrared scanners and so forth, uh, whereas China would send in just thousands of average people to each collect a grain of sand and that they would bring this sand back and that like through these small pieces of information they could assemble it into a whole um, that would give this bigger picture and you know I am not, I'm not the first one to d debunk this I'm relying on on um, a very nice series of ed essays by the uh, intelligence analyst um, Peter Mattis um, who, who has a um, kind of more academic book also on Chinese espionage that I would recommend. Uh, but this, this theory uh, is problematic because it suggests that it's primarily ethnic Chinese who are doing intelligence collection for China. Um, it also misses the very professional espionage operations that China has. Um, so the corn, the corn operation is not an example of a very professional, yeah. a very professional um, operation, but there are state-led intelligence agencies that operate in some ways similar to the CIA and the NSA. Right. Well, and what you mentioned in, in passing was that if a thousand grain of sand theory is true, then every single Chinese person that comes to the United States is a potential spy or is going to be suspected to be, mm -hmm. because even if they're bringing back a menu from a restaurant, even if they're bringing back something you would consider very benign, it could be part of this bigger picture that the Chinese are trying to construct based on lots of different pieces of information. And there have been people who, so President Trump recently said something of that sort. You know, every student who comes here is potentially a spy. Um, I, either a lot of problems with that statement. Uh, one is that it has led to ch Chinese researchers who are here to contribute to the U.S. Um, innovation uh, in, in enterprise are feeling targeted and feeling like like they are being unfairly maligned, and um, that you know people who are c committing infractions are are a small percentage of um, of this total, and that the um, the other hand, there are also many non-Chinese who've committed both um, espionage and, and industrial espionage um, on behalf of China. And we're seeing more, more of those cases coming up. Right. It's, it's like just looking for Arabs going through the airport. Right? You're, you're basically, right. by, by just profiling ethnic Chinese, you're going to miss mm -hmm. a huge segment. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. 
Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I, I, I think that, that you're right in the fact that the modern-day FBI is not necessarily following the thousand grains of sand theory as it has been debunked. I think there's an interesting hybrid that's kind of popped up, this idea that there are kind of a public-private partnership in China as well between private companies like the one we're talking about today doing their own form of economic espionage and the Chinese government doing it in a more professional sense, Mm -hmm. where, like you mentioned, they look the other way and perhaps even maybe give a nudge or a help in a certain direction. That's not unique. I mean, the U.S. government doesn't choose sides with this intelligence collection, but it's certainly looking out for American businesses abroad as well. Right. Well, you know, I would argue that by bringing these cases on behalf of large corporations like Monsanto, the the U.S. government is uh, providing them with quite a lot of assistance. Um, so it makes sense in, in certain cases to me, but in other cases, um, you know, like for example, in the seed industry, uh, Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer, the other um, victim company in this case, together controlled a very large um, segment of the market. And when I talked to farmers uh, around the Midwest, many of them told me that the, um, you know, the, the major issue that they see is not industrial espionage from China, but corporate consolidation in right. the seed industry. So the U.S. government is providing these companies a lot of support. The, um, the irony in the case I looked at is that by the end of my reporting, Monsanto had been acquired by Bayer, the German conglomerate, so it was no longer even American. Well, and I think that, again, you look at, it's rare you're ever going to find DuPont being considered a victim. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, again, it something like yeah. Monsanto, which just had to pay a ridiculous amount of money because of all the Roundup stuff, too. Mm-hmm. These are the people who are being protected by the U.S. government. But let's talk about why, because I think that's interesting, because the, the, the American government's view and ways we've dealt with economic espionage has changed in our lifetimes, um, in most everyone's lifetimes, because this really wasn't understood or dealt with in a very particular way until the mid-1990s. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, it was lawsuits. It was, you stole my intellectual property. Mm-hmm. It was things like that. All of a sudden, it becomes a national security issue. Right. Uh, with, in 1996, mm-hmm. during the Clinton administration. And we can talk a little bit about how that transition took place. And really, there's some real interesting impact to, as you already mentioned, some of it, the fact that the government is going to bat for companies like Monsanto. Mm-hmm. But even beyond that, when we kind of talk about the numbers involved in the kind of economic losses and cyber and things like that that mm-hmm. are propped up by the government so that automatically they become true. Right. Yeah, so going back to the early 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, um, there was a vacuum in a way uh, among many in, within many intelligence agencies where the threat that 
people had been working on researching for years suddenly uh, was no longer a threat in quite the same way. You know, Russia's still obviously a very big concern right now, but you know, at the time there was a lot of soul searching and um, casting about for a new mission. Um, at the same time, uh, you had out of work agents in other countries. So the end of the Cold War meant that um, Soviet agents could go to work for private companies. And, uh, and that was happening around the world. So companies were hiring um, these former spies. The US government was looking for this, and so the US um, intelligence apparatus was looking for this new mission. And then the internet came onto the scene. And so you suddenly becomes much easier to steal secrets. And you know, kind of this groundswell of support for, um, focusing on economic intelligence. And there were some people at the time, um, you know, even former um, uh, CIA directors, who advocated the US actively spying on other countries' companies. You know, so like, if we're gonna get in this, let's right. get in all the way, let's well, just was, I mean, spy. if you remember the 1990s, yeah. this is a period of massive globalization where it's these American companies aren't just competing with each other anymore, they're not competing right. with, companies around the world and people aren't measuring world state power and the amount of nuclear missiles you have anymore or how big your army is is about economic power right so mm -hmm. you know it, that's the kind of the this is the decade where all of that shifts and all that changes and american law goes along with it sure right um you know one of the big concerns at the time was france because there had been this scandal where air france was caught bugging yeah. the first class uh cabins and supposedly collecting information from business travelers. And the, uh, the head of the French Secret Service was really open about the fact that they were just engaging in this sort of spying. Um, so then the Economic Espionage Act was passed in 1996, um, but it wasn't until 10 years or so ago that, that the focus shifted to China and that you see um, now there are just dozens and dozens of cases being brought um, FBI Director Christopher Wray said recently that there are over a thousand open active investigations uh, in involving IP theft from China. And so this has become a major area of focus. Well, you, pr you present some numbers um, that people I'm sure out there have heard because they get bandied about all the time. And what's interesting, if you talk about the shift to China, these numbers kind of follow that pattern as well, where People have heard 300 to 600 billion dollars is lost every year to economic espionage. These numbers were probably just pulled randomly out of someone's ass. Um, but even if it was a real number, they were originally stood for all losses mm -hmm. to everyone, even domestic companies in economic espionage. But magically, now it's just China. Right. And the same with some of the cybercrime statistics that were just made up from cybersecurity firms. Right. Now, obviously, there's they're not exactly passive observers. You know, McAfee and others saying a billion, you know, or trillion dollars a year. These numbers mean nothing. On top of which, they used to be writ large. Now it's China, and you know, it's maybe they are as bad of actors as everyone's portraying them to be. But some of the magic and the numbers can't be overlooked. That you know, someone all, all of a sudden said, "Poof, all of this is China and nobody else." Yeah, when I when I try to unpack these figures on this is estimates of how much the United States has lost to industrial espionage from China, 
it's it was really hard to nail down a, a quality source for that figure and in general it's it's hard to come up with um with losses i mean the, the most people estimate that they are definitely there this is this is a real problem it's certainly happening um i mean to go back to the the case at the center of the book it 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 i found it also interesting to look at the amount of resources that is getting spent on fighting the problem right. um so so you know after robert Mo was found in this cornfield um the fbi opens a case uh, they end up over the course of these two years waging car, you know, staging car chases, airport busts, um, flying surveillance planes overhead. Uh, they take out a FISA warrant, which is typically reserved for you know, extreme national security threats of terrorism, and collect evidence that way. Um, they're bugging the car, the vehicle, the rental cars that Robert Moe and his colleagues are driving. Um, you know, for me as a writer, that was fascinating because I was able to get the, what they're saying in those cars mm -hmm. as they're driving across the Midwest and include those details in the book um, in the in the form of dialogue. Uh, and uh, but this was just a it was a massive effort. And this is just one case. Uh, there are many others in which um, we don't have quite the same visibility, but there may be the same uh, degree of resources. Well, and then you have to do the cost-benefit analysis of saying, number one, is the United States government losing any money whatsoever if this doesn't happen? Like, so mm. it's not it's not the government; it's Monsanto or it's Dupont losing in you know trade secrets. But somehow the government is spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars chasing this stuff down. Mm -hmm. And how do you, even if China does steal these secrets, uh, as you mentioned in the book, especially when you're talking about agricultural secrets? They become obsolete very quickly, mm -hmm. and there you actually need to know how to do more than just reverse engineering. You need to know how kind of things work, and do it. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, let me ask you one question before we move on. That's talking very specifically about seeds. You do spend some time talking about Wen Ho Lee, and he's an interesting case study for, from my perspective because nuclear weapons is kind of my fo my focus. And I do know who uh, I'm personally acquainted with, the uh, director of Los Alamos when he was there. Oh, really? Um, oh. And what's interesting about him and this is something that actually does reinforce a lot of what you talk about in this book, is that the vast majority of those in the business think that Wen Ho Lee is guilty as guilty can be guilty. But the FBI botched it up so badly that they couldn't actually convict him of anything. And so the blame is not about Wen Ho Lee from the, the nuclear weapons community. The blame is the FBI for screwing up the investigation so badly because he was indicted on dozens and dozens of things and only was you know, basically pled down to one. And that wasn't because it was clear that he had done bad stuff. Everyone assumes he did bad stuff. But what is he guilty of? Well, right? I mean, because I, yeah. he mishandled classified information. Well, that's but what he, still, yeah, still that's what he, yeah. you know, he clearly had contact with um, Chinese science officials, but well, but there, there may be visibility into the investigation that I don't have. Well, no, but it, it's a little bit of a, when you have that level of clearance, when you have contact with Chinese officials, Chinese intelligence officials, Chinese scientific officials, you don't report that. That The first thing you do is come back and report that, right? That's that's When you get your top secret clearance, the number one thing is any any contact with foreigners, especially foreigners mm -hmm. involved in you know intelligence work, the first thing you do, and it's very suspicious if you don't. Why didn't you do that? 
and then taking documents away and then you know contact mm-hmm. with you know whether the Taiwanese are always tricky because you don't know necessarily if they're working for their government or they're working for the Chinese the point being that the overzealous prosecution that the FBI has been doing across the board on a lot of these cases actually backfired dramatically right. in the Wen Ho Lee's case yeah. because no one will even talk about it now because he wins his civil case where he got over a million dollars for essentially his name being destroyed. Um, and now people who might actually have information are like, I'm not saying a word about that thing. And so almost to the degree where you have a legitimate intelligence targets that are doing bad stuff against the United States, maybe much harder to actually prosecute because of the overabundance of these cases that keep popping up for nonsense along the way. Right, botch cases certainly yeah. don't help. And my understanding of the Wen Holy case is that it was never proven, and you know, to some degree this is all speculation, but it's never proven that he was involved in transferring the secrets to the W88 warhead, um, which was the issue that sparked the, the, the investigation. Um, and there were a number of other problems um, with the whole debacle. Um, I mean, what many people today, uh, m- many Chinese American scientists and their supporters are still upset about the Wen Ho Lee um, investigation and then feel like it has been replayed. Um, so there have been, right. n- not that the case of Robert Mo um, is, is, is not an example of it because here's somebody who, who clearly committed an offense. Um, there are other questions about that case that I raise in the book. Um, but there are cases where, um, you know, there's a case where the physicist Xiaoxing Xi was arrested at gunpoint and then later cleared of all charges. And in, in his case, it's not clear if that the government had any reason to look at him with suspicion. Well, this it, was, beyond, it seems yeah. like an error in, in, in analyzing the technology right. at issue. Well, that's the thing. Is, you know, I, I would say espionage is probably very similar in many respects to something like rape, not in the actual act itself, but once you're, once you're kind of plastered with that, that mm-hmm. stigma, it doesn't go away. You know, like you know, we're still talking about one holy right now, saying, ah, I think he actually did it, right? Even though he's been paid a hefty sum by the government for ruining yeah. his name, there's still people like me who think that he's a bad guy. Right. I, I wouldn't go on record saying I think he did it. So right. I just want to make right. that exactly. clear. No. So, but I'm saying in this case, you, you have someone that even though they are completely, you know, all the charges are dismissed against them, um, the fact that someone, you know, the FBI kicked down their door with guns is always going to be kind of follow yeah, them around through the rest of their lives. life back easily. Yeah. That that is that's a very good point. Well, I think um, that the, the now that there's so many activists popping up because of things like the Wen Holy case, and and scientists are less willing to work with the government because they're worried that they're going to get caught up and pulled into this. It's very similar to the counterterrorism problem we run into, where mm-hmm. if you villainize an entire community, you don't have that community to work with you for legitimate cases. Because look, you're not saying that the Chinese mm-hmm. aren't trying to spy on the United States. We know for a fact. The Chinese are spying on the United States, the cyber attacks and everything else. But what you're arguing is it's much more difficult to actually stop the real bad guys because of this wide net we've cast against all Chinese Americans. Well, so, yeah, I felt um, once I started my reporting, I felt that in order to understand this case, I needed to understand the the history of um, the way the FBI's looked at 
Chinese and Chinese American scientists. And it's a long history um, going back to the Red Scare and afterward. And, and I obtained some documents using FOIA, using Freedom of Information Act, um, that were FBI program files from the 60s and 70s, um, showing that they, there was an actual program to monitor ethnic Chinese scientists, including US citizens. And from the program documents, you know, some people in, within the FBI described it as a way to cultivate informants, you know, to try to even um, plant some of these scientists as double agents. So there was like one idea that was floated was to recruit some of them to um, you know, work at sensitive laboratories and then wait until they were approached by China and try to get information that way. Um, you know, interestingly, even Wen Ho Lee's wife was an informant for the FBI and the CIA. Um, but the truth is that many people, and I talked to family members, um, and many of these scientists also left their own writings, even though they're not alive any longer, and who they feel like they were just being surveilled. You know, they weren't serving as informants, right. but that they were. And that, that level of distrust right. is certainly not a way to get an important community on your side because, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not going to stereotype, but a lot of these, the, certainly when you have big Chinatowns, whether it's San Francisco or New York, there isn't some insular society there. And it's not like I could walk into the middle of a New York or San Francisco Chinatown and, and walk in and get information that I needed. I mean, it's a lot, it's very similar again to kind of the counterterrorism problem is if you want good information, you need to actually have people who are part of the community and can move very freely within the community. And if you've alienated every one of them, yeah. then you're in you know, deep trouble moving forward. So I got into these issues in part because they came up in Robert Moe's case. So there were um, some assumptions made in that case. Like for example, um, the FBI, the lead FBI agent in one warrant application um, he listed uh, as suspicious the fact that Robert spoke Mandarin with um, with this other woman, and, you know, and I, there may be other reasons that that woman um, should have been under suspicion. But the um, the specifically speaking Mandarin, you know, that's something people speak to each other all right. the time is their native right. language. It, that came up in the Wen Holi case as well. That was cited and cited on one of the warrant applications in that case. And um, so because he, because Robert Moe's case was playing out at the same time as these other cases where you saw these botched investigations being brought and um, increasing criticism of the FBI strategy, it, the issue became so fraught that the judge in the case actually um, for, forbid the two sides from mentioning his ethnicity if it went to trial. Um, so, you know, they were not allowed to mention the fact that he was Chinese right. unless it was pertinent somehow. And except that was yeah. literally like the way they tracked him around was that he was the Chinese guy wandering around Iowa and, you know, basically standing out like a sore thumb. I mean, that's the profile mm -hmm. that they were able to, to make of him. One thing I want to get at before, you know, again, I don't want to give away a lot of the story more than you're giving away because it's, it's written as a narrative and it's a really interesting narrative as it kind of opens up and breaks down. But people may wonder, what's the big deal about corn and corn seed? Um, and that's that's something that, if you don't understand that, then this doesn't make any sense at all. Because China, their real problem, arguably their most pressing problem, 
is that they don't make enough food to feed themselves, right? They're always going to have to depend on importing food from outside. And that's where kind of it becomes an existential concern for them of like, how are they going to make their food production more efficient? And so just as important as American, you know, nuclear power or American weapon systems or American trade secrets is agricultural secrets. You know, we, again, we might kind of dismiss this as being whatever, but for the Chinese, this is like target number one for espionage. Um, and, and that to me, you know, is, is interesting because we're, we're not necessarily as a country thinking about what potentially would be the most juicy tidbits of information from our adversaries. But yeah, the, certainly you know, now we yeah. are. I well, mean, yeah. so now, now the FBI puts out brochures on agricultural espionage and, and goes and gives these information sessions to companies and so forth. I mean, I think this case, and there have been several others involving agricultural technology were, were a wake-up call in that regard. Um, and for China, you know, the, issue, the issues that you have of, of large population in that is rapidly becoming um, more wealthy. So people are able to eat more meat. They eat the, the diet looks more like the diet of Americans, uh, which is very resource intensive. So in order to make meat, you need you need grain, uh, which comes from corn often. And and so um, leaders are acutely aware of uh, the fact that, you know, there's this need for better agricultural products. Well, I mean, be acutely aware because a lot of it does come from the United States. And if, God forbid, any kind of real tensions popped up between China and the United States, that could be somewhere we could squeeze mm-hmm. and make life a lot more difficult. And and that wouldn't be just a, oh, geez, we don't have enough food. That could be mass unrest. You know, you're talking about the people rising up right. because food is fundamental to everything. Well, we've right? seen that with the trade war. I mean, the... Um... We've also seen how complex the relationship is as a result of the trade war. Uh, so, you know, in retaliation for the tariffs we slapped on China, they slapped tariffs on on soy and pork. And in you know, Iowa, where I did much of my reporting for the book, had been heavily dependent on on Chinese purchases of agricultural products. So the loss of the American market hurt China, but it is also hurt the um, Midwestern farm economy to a very large degree. And that's why this is such a complicated problem. You see, um, it is not easy to disentangle ourselves from our relationship with, I mean, both when it comes to spying and like how we address that, but also just economically. um, There was, there's one scene in the book where Xi Jinping, who's now the leader of China, he was, he was then, um, kind of second in waiting, he traveled to Iowa to um, tour farms. He, he had long-standing ties to the state, and he gave a speech. Uh, the ag- agriculture ministers from both sides were there. He was very happy because they were making a deal, and you know, Iowa was standing to get rich on on this purchase. And sitting in the audience was Robert Mo on that day. And um, the FBI was actually waiting outside. The FBI agents were waiting outside to tail him to wherever he was going afterwards. He was wearing a um, another man's name tag inside. And I, the FBI wasn't able to tie that specific 
incident to any anything nefarious but you know it just shows how um this man who becomes this pawn in this global rivalry between the u.s and china he kind of crops up at all these um unusual moments right well what's what i find so fun interesting is the fact that the chinese or in this case this company in china robert mo could not have picked anything more american to try to steal I mean, the, the history of corn in the United States, the, the importance of corn in the United States, the fact that generations and generations of Iowans and Nebraskans and whoever else have, you know, been working on this one key issue and it's become so central to the American economy. Um, it's not like some of these other cases that we look at, whether it's Air France or the, mm-hmm. the white stuff in Oreo cookies and all these other things that were economic espionage. This is probably kind of... I, I don't even know how to do this without saying being it's like stealing spaghetti recipes from the Italians, right? It's about as <laughs> fundamentally American as it gets. Or stealing tea it's, from the Chinese. Right, so stealing tea from the Chinese. <laughs> Which or so but yeah. it, this is about as fundamentally American as it gets. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, true. That's true. It is a kind of visceral case and and F, um, US government officials have made speeches that kind of hit on that theme I mean, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo flew to Des Moines last year and uh, talked about Robert Moe's case at the time um, and how you know like China's were literally targeting our cornfields um, the thing that that picture misses though is that the U.S. agricultural economy has become incredibly complex as I mentioned we're you know, heavily dependent on China um, for buying U.S. goods. And then at the same time, it's no longer this kind of idyllic um, heartland dotted with family farms. And And even then, the corn's um, not being fed to people as corn. It's being fed to us and Coke as high fructose corn syrup. And so I think what we come up against is, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese state relationship to companies is complex and there's a lot of gray area but chinese companies are generally have they're generally beholden to the chinese government have some responsibility and what we're running up against here is that we have these huge multinationals um that are it's sometimes in our interest to protect their products but ultimately they're not beholden to the u.s government and so a company like monsanto could go to Germany and um, you know become Bayer and and I'm not sure what we gained in the end. Right. Well, and particularly because the average farmer, the you know the American farmer who is the taxpayer is being squeezed out of their job. I mean, they could right. they could be a peon working for Monsanto, but the whole mm-hmm. idea of you know owning a hundred, two hundred, five hundred acres and having a farm with your own plows and your you know whatever. That's almost gone at this point because of people like Monsanto, of mm-hmm. companies like Monsanto who have made everything else so expensive that it's near impossible to make money doing that. Right. And I learned about a lot of these issues kind of partway through my reporting where I was knocking on doors, you know, hunting down everybody who was named in the court documents. And I um, was talking to one farmer and I said, oh, so, you know, do you have any contact with Robert Moe like were you in touch with him and he said oh no 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 my my contact was the American guy and um, that was the point at which I learned that there was this Illinois farmer and seed breeder 
um, named Kevin Montgomery, who had been this pivotal figure in the case. So he had actually been hired as a consultant um, by DBN, by this Beijing company. And then um, he, he was kind of a useful stooge in the operation, right? right? So he was, he was keeping up appearances, you know, making the, making the operation look more legitimate. Like they, they were setting up an office in the US and setting up this farm and, and you know, suddenly they have this experienced um, local seed breeder working for them. And then a few months into his work, the FBI knocks on his door and um, then he becomes a very reluctant FBI informant. Um, so he was also caught in the middle of these, you know, this uh, FBI investigation and then this Chinese company on the other hand on the other end and he had this very unique perspective from from having seen all of that up close well you can see I mean if talk about talking about intelligence recruitment right so if I'm recruiting an asset I'm trying to find what makes them vulnerable and in the case of of Kevin PhD and essentially you know the science you would need to do you know seed breeding right I mean and had no job because of kind of the consolidation of the farming and everything, the agribusiness that had gone on. So this is an exceptionally well-educated, smart guy who has no job. And all along comes this Chinese company where, and even mentioned throughout the book that before the FBI shows up, he's got all sorts of kind of back of his neck standing up questions about like, this kind of right. seems weird. You know, why are they doing it this way? This is kind of out of place, but I'm making good money and there's no other job in town. And let me just kind of roll along with it because maybe they're just stupid. And so perhaps if there wasn't this kind of sense of desperation in this sense of there's no other job, they wouldn't be able to use kind of someone like Kevin uh, to, to give a kind of front uh, to legitimize their operation because um, no one would be willing to do it because they'd ask those questions along beforehand, you know, you even write that he asked Robert Moe question after question after question and he just kind of ignored it or went around it. Someone who wasn't dependent on this kind of a company for lifestyle may have gotten out earlier, may have decided this was not for me. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't have much choice in the matter because there's no other jobs. Right, right. Yeah. So even Syngenta, one of the major competitors to Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer, it's now Chinese. So it's acquired by by a Chinese chemical conglomerate. And, um, you know, Kevin had worked for them for, for a while. Well, I, the book to me, it's fascinating look at something um, you usually don't get a chance to see, something this recent where there's almost nothing that's redacted, which is fantastic, right? I mean, that's the idea, you know, some of these cases, intelligence, espionage cases are just so fully redacted um, that you can't even figure out what the story is, but so much of this is out in the open. And yes, there are articles all over the place, but this, this is really the first book to kind of put it all together. Um, so it was an enjoyable read. I, I truly, um, I flew through it, which is great, because of the narrative structure that written like a journalist. And that's, oh. in many respects, as a historian, we write badly. Uh, and so <laughs> reading something where I can fly through it is always nice. Um, and you know, the fact that you have just page after page of notes at the end is wonderful for us as well. Um, the book is called The Scientist and the Spy, The True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage. Uh, it is about the Chinese corn caper case, which is just absolutely fascinating. These Chinese um, businessmen on their hands and knees in Iowa picking up corn off the bottom of cornfields. Uh, that's the beginning, and then it just gets crazier from there. 
Uh, the author is Mara Vistendahl. Vistendahl. Oh, I almost got it right twice. <laughs> Close enough. Yes. Close enough. The H is silent. Um, uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the show. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.